Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening is Senior Editor at the Augustine Institute and Editor of the St. Austin Review. A native of England, Joseph Pierce is an internationally acclaimed author of many books, including The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, The Unmasking of Oscar Wilde, and C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church. His world-recognized biographies have been translated into nine other languages. In addition to hosting two television series about Shakespeare on EWTN, he has also written and presented documentaries on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. We're thrilled to welcome back to the Institute for the second time, Joseph Pierce. Welcome. Welcome, Mr. Pierce. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Father Hezekiah and Andy. I, I really do appreciate it. It's a privilege and a pleasure and an honor to be the part of the wonderful work you're doing. Do you mind if we begin in, in prayer? Please. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all sin and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming. I see there's quite a, quite a large number of people uh, participating, which is very encouraging. Um, I normally begin with a prayer, but as Father Hezekiah says, the priest has already done it. We will, we, we, will, we will forsake that formality. So poetry in medieval prayer. Now, I, I like to be sort of structured uh, and uh, meta, uh, have a methodology to follow. So I, I'd like to be begin by defining our terms. So let's pick apart, if you like, the title here, poetry in medieval prayer. So those three terms, poetry, medieval and prayer. So first of all, medieval, various people have various ideas about what the medieval period is of course it means middle ages or middle times but i'm going to take the broadest understanding of it uh, in our discussion today for basically a thousand year period from the fifth century to the 15th century in other words from the 400s to the 1400s okay um so we're going to be looking at that period now prayer of course is lifting the heart and mind to god um that's my understanding of prayer that i'm going to be using within this is is the conscious lifting of the heart and mind to god uh, and in poetry. Now, poetry, I want to begin, we will become, if you like, we'll hone in and become more specific. But I want to begin with discussing poetry in its etymological sense, in its linguistic sense. So the word poet or poetry comes from uh, the Greek word poesis, uh, which means to make or to create. So the first thing I want to say is that poetry is not what many Walmart Catholics might think, I like that phrase, I'll be using that often now, uh, it's not what many Walmart ca Catholics think, that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a sonnet, it's a rhyming uh, verse, it's poetry uh, about daffodils, it's, it's something which is not particularly relevant to reality, uh, it's not relevant to the faith, you know, let's, you know, let's just keep the catechesis, on the contrary, um, I would like to suggest at the beginning here that Poetry in this, in this, in this fundamental sense of poesis is the mark of the image of God in us. Okay, so in that sense, inseparable from prayer. In other words, prayer in some sense is impossible without poesis. So let me let me try to explain. When we say that we are made in the image of God, as distinct from the rest of creation, because of course, in one sense. All of creation is made in the image of God. Right? A cow is made in the image of God because a cow is the product of God's imagination, okay? God's poetry, God's poesis, God's creativity, God's making, okay? So everything, and the, I'm looking out the window now, uh, and I can see a whole bank, glorious bank, 150 feet high trees in glorious 
uh, riotous green because it's now obviously uh, the beginning of summer. So uh, that all shines forth God's image. The poet Jeremiah Hopkins said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Right? And one of, the real, one of the real keys to communing with God in our lives is to actually be able to see and experience and respond to the grandeur of God in creation. But we are made in the image of God in a way which is different from a cow or a tree or the rest of uh, the grandeur of God, God we found in the world. We are actually divine in certain ways. We have attributes that are, are, are part of the divine image, uh, which separates us from the rest of creation. So it uh, takes various forms. One is uh, the ability to love, okay, to be lovers. Uh, now, uh, as a Christian understanding of the word, to love is to rationally, consciously, freely choose to lay down our lives for the other okay uh, so it's a rational choice it's not a, a sexual attraction or a, or a feeling okay it's a rational choice god chooses to become incarnate he chooses to suffer what that entails including the suffering on the cross that is an act of love rationally chosen so we can do that uh the cow can't do that the tree can't do that Another is the ability to reason, right? to, 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 to be able to, uh, I sometimes say that the, the animal grazes, but man gazes. We look up, we look at the stars. As Oscar Wilde said, you know, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. We're meant to look up and wonder at the majesty of the cosmos, to see the music of the spheres, to observe and, 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 and to grow closer to God through the reason. Uh, so we see in the Greeks, you know, the understand, understanding of the transcendentals, the understanding of the unity of the cosmos, the beauty of the cosmos, the goodness, truth and beauty of creation, this early inklings of the Trinity. So we can reason. We're rational. God, of course, is the reason, the source of reason. And all reason leads back to him. He's also the source of love and all love leads back to him. But the other thing that God is, and we forget this at our peril, in the sense of, be, of, of failing thereby to become fully Catholic, is that God is the creator. God is the poet, poesis, the maker. This creative uh, aspect of the divine is also in us. So our own creativity, our own desire to write poetry, to read poetry, and again, in the broader sense of the word poesis, to uh, paint pictures, to sculpt stone in, into, into beautiful images, to compose music, all of this is poesis. Um, and this is part of the divine image in us. A fourth one, by the way, which we often overlook, is humor. Animals don't laugh. Even hyenas don't laugh. It just sounds like they're laughing. So, but, but humor is something which is, which is singularly human. So if you like, that sense of humor is all something divine. And one thing we don't think about very often is the glorious divine comedy, which we are a part of, which is God's creation, which includes a good deal of humor. OK, we're meant to be jolly. We're meant to laugh. And I'm sure there's an awful lot of laughter in heaven. OK, so medieval, 5th century, the 15th century. Prayer, lifting up the mind and the heart to God. Poetry, poesis in the most fundamental sense, creating, making. As Tolkien would say, we make according to the law by which we're made. God is a maker. The divine image in us makes us makers. Okay, so now we've looked at what we're talking about here. I go back briefly to pre-medieval times and indeed pre-Christian times. I'm going to go back to the earliest, almost at least, the earliest literature, the earliest great literature we know, and that's the epics of Homer. Now, in the Iliad, how does Homer begin the Iliad? He begins the Iliad with a prayer. So his great poem begins with a prayer, and the prayer is, Sing, muse. 
In other words, sing, you creative goddesses, all right? Uh, my, my goddess of creation, you do the singing through me. This understanding, even amongst the pagans, that creativity is a gift of God that requires God's infusion of his creative presence in us so that we are able to make beautiful things uh, in his image and in ours. So, sinews. So, the whole idea that even Homer understands of this connection between poetry, creativity, and prayer, all right, is a relationship. But let's now move into the, the medieval times and Boethius. don't know how many of you have read The Constellation of Philosophy by Boethius. It's a very uh, uh, early work of um, Christian literature uh, from the uh, 6th century, from the 500s. It was written by Boethius when he's uh, on death row. He's in prison await waiting to be executed. And at the beginning of it, he is writing poetry. And he's writing poetry until this beautiful woman uh, arrives, the beautiful woman, Lady Philosophy. And Lady Philosophy is annoyed with him. Why are you wasting your time with these muses? Right? Why are you wasting your time writing poetry? Well, you should be using your mind to philosophize. You should be philosophia, the love of wisdom. You should be devoting yourself to the love of wisdom because you're going to die soon, all right? Let's, let's talk about the important things. So for Boethius, the muses are a distraction, right? Very different from Homer. But I think that there's a connection because for, for the early Christians, paganism was the enemy. Uh, and so we need to sort of focus, if you like, on doctrine uh, and, 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 and not on pagan myths. And the word myth, of course, does not mean lie. It means story, right? So they're works of creativity. We can't spend too much time with these pagan stories. We have to just listen to the gospel. And this is understandable because there's a fight going on in the culture wars at the time between paganism and Christianity. So Christianity is intent on showing that it is the truth and this other vision of things is not the truth. But later on, of course, um, when things have, if you like, settled down, that paganism is, has been put to rest, then Christianity can return to it and accept and embrace it no longer as a threat, but as something which is part of their heritage. But even in, the, in Boethius, the muses are tempting him to passions, okay, to emotions, to feelings, particularly the feelings of self-pity, all right? He's about to die, right? He's going to leave his family. He's going to be executed. And the muses are, are, are allowing him to wallow in self-pity because, again, we're going to move right forward now, but this is a perennial thing throughout history. The romantic movement, and perhaps we'll have a later lecture, uh, poetry in modern prayer, <laughs> where we can actually talk about, amongst other things, the romantics. But so the romantics re reacted against the cold rationalism, the empiricism of the Enlightenment, by saying, let's forget all that cold, rational stuff, and let's get back to our feelings. It's about feelings, about going out there and seeing beauty and being possessed by it. And in many ways, that was healthy after the cold empiricism of the Enlightenment, but it can and did go too far. Because if we trust our feelings to the exclusion of our reason, we go astray. The Catholic Church has always insisted in the inextricable marriage between fides et ratio, between faith and reason. So when we start talking about feelings being more important than reason, we've gone wrong. So in many ways, Boethius's complaint philosophy's complaint against the muses is bona fide, it's in good faith and good reason, in sense that his muses are allowing him to wallow in feelings. But they needn't do that, right? The muses themselves, if you like, it's like a gift of grace. We pollute the gift of grace, which comes into us as something which is entirely pure because it's from God. We pollute it with our sin. So all of the gifts that we give, including the gift of life, we pollute the gift of life with our sin. We also 
pollute the creative gifts that are given to us with our sin. The gift itself is pure. What we do with it uh, is another issue. All right. But let's go back a little bit with St. Augustine. Now, in uh, De Doctrina Christiana, which goes back to the late 4th century, um, so he, technically before the medieval ages, it's the early church, uh, he talks about we can only understand reality through the use of signs, signifiers, um, and words are, are, if you like, uh, the allegories, all right? A word is an allegory. An allegory is something, allegoros in Greek, something which points to something beyond itself. Now, if you don't speak English, I know what you're doing here if you don't speak English, you're getting very bored at the moment, probably, but um, you, you won't understand a word I'm saying because you don't understand the allegories that are pouring forth from my mouth, right? The word mouth is a noise. And it's a noise that if you don't speak English is meaningless. But if you do speak English, the, the, the noise, the, the, the sound signifies this, okay? So Augustine, you know, was, was very, very um, uh, at the center of his understanding of how we connect with reality is through this use of the imagination, all right? We use things that signify things beyond themselves. We hear things that signify things beyond themselves. So we're thinking allegorically all the time. So we're thinking artistically and imaginatively. The imagination is necessary for thought, right? Some deep philosophy here. Now, let's move from just before the Middle Ages begin to the higher Middle Ages and St. Thomas Aquinas. St. Thomas Aquinas shows us that the way that we engage with reality is, first of all, with virtue. That the absence of virtue prevents an engagement with reality. In other words, sin is an obstacle to our understanding of the real. Because humility, which if you like, is in, in many ways, we talk about love being a virtue, and of course it is. But in many ways, humility is the first and best of the virtues because it is the opposite to pride, which is the first and worst of the sins. Okay, So pride can be defined as the absence of humility. So if, if we have humility, we have gratitude. If we have gratitude, this is all from the Summa Theologica from St. Thomas Aquinas, by the way. Um, if, if, if we have humility, we have gratitude. If we have gratitude, we see with eyes of wonder. And it's only when we see with eyes opened to wonder that we are moved to contemplation. And that contemplation leads to the greatest gift of all, St. Thomas calls dilatatio, dilation, the opening and of the mind into the fullness of the presence of the real. So if we're proud, I look out the window and I just see green. If I see it at all, I'm probably not even noticing it. Like most of us don't notice the sunrise. If I have humility, I'm imbued with a sense of gratitude and I look out the window and I don't just see uh, green. I see multifarious shades of green washed with sunlight and I moved contemplation dilatatio and that dilatatio that openness is where poetry begins right when, when, you, when your eyes are open to wonder you have that contemplation and the opening wow and that's when Gerard Manny Hopkins says the world is charged with the grandeur of God will shine out like shook foil. So we see the connection, I hope now, between um, poetry and prayer, okay? Poetry and praise. So now I now want to work through uh, for the remainder uh, of the talk of the lecture some of the great poetry of that thousand year period and see how it connects to prayer. If you like, we spent the first 20 minutes laying down foundations to give us the principles we need. So Beowulf, so one of the earliest poems in the English language, um, is certainly not a prayer. It's a story, okay? It's a story of prayer. Not technically, you know, is the parable of the prodigal son a prayer? Not technically. But what it's meant to do is to lead us to that contemplation that leads to that dilation that leads to praise. 
And that praise, the lifting of the heart and mind to God is prayer. So if Beowulf, the story of Beowulf is not technically a prayer, it's something which is meant to lead us. Um, in, in Beowulf's case, uh, the first two parts of the of the story, if you have read it, you'll know. Basically, it's this really basic three parts. Uh, Beowulf's struggle with three different monsters, Grendel, Grendel's mother, and the dragon. Now, the struggles with, with Grendel and Grendel's mother are actually an allegory on Pelagianism. Yesterday, actually, uh, was it the day before yesterday? No, yesterday was the Feast of St. Germanus. St. Germanus uh, was the, the Bishop of Auxerre in France who was sent to England to combat the heresy of Pelagianism. And the Pelagians believed that um, you just had to read the gospel listen to what Jesus says in the gospel, and then through the power of your own will, just do what Jesus says, and you will earn your way to heaven. And of course, and what that means is you don't need any of the sacraments. You don't need any supernatural help, right? You just listen and do. You don't need baptism. You don't need confirmation. You don't need confession. You don't need the blessed sacrament, which also means, of course, you don't need the church. Okay, just you and the word and you do what Jesus says. Uh, What would Jesus do? You do it and you get to heaven. So it's a meditation on the errors of Pelagianism, because a large part of the story is how Beowulf cannot defeat the power of evil through his own strength alone. He does need supernatural assistance. And by the way, Beowulf poem, most people uh, believe, is written at the same time uh, as Bede is writing. And Bede's writing about plagiarism as being a major problem in the very recent past. It would have been something which was... Anyway, that's... The, third, the last part of the poem, The Dragon, is actually... There's all sorts of numerical signifiers that connect it to the Passion of the Christ. So we need, we meant to read about Beowulf's fight with the dragon as being analogous to... Jesus Christ's fight with the dragon, with his passion, death, and resurrection. There's a great deal in medieval prayer, medieval literature, uh, medieval imagery about Jesus as a warrior. Uh, And, of course, the church is the church militant. We are miles, we are soldiers, okay? The church still uses that imagery, but it's much more prominent in medieval times. And then we look at some of the other Anglo-Saxon poetry, the Dream of the Rude, you might know, which is a meditation. It's a dream that the Wood of the Cross has about what a blessing it is to be chosen to have Christ, to carry Christ. And he suffers. The, the cross suffers with Christ because it also, of course, is, has nails hammered into it, etc. So it's a meditation, if you like, uniting creation with the creator. And and if that poem does not lift your mind and heart to God, in other words, does not lift you into prayer and praise, it's because you're hard-hearted. I want to um, give an example of another Anglo-Saxon poem called The Ruin. What I want you to imagine here, this poetry is probably written in in about the 700s, probably. And the Romans left England uh, 250, 300 years earlier. So... These Roman cities, they think this is probably about Bath, the city of Bath. I think it was Aquisulis, was it the Roman name for the city of Bath? So he's walking around the ruins of this civilization that once lived on this space and no longer lives there. And they they call these people the giants, the Romans. Let's read some of this. And because this is is translation from the Old English, um, and as T.S. Eliot said, between the potency and the existence falls the shadow in other words between the potential and the power and the existence of a translation a shadow falls so if you really want to get the true beauty of this poem learn old english but this will be this this shadowed version is what we're going to get here well wrought this wall weirds broke it the stronghold burst weirds by the way uh the anglo-saxon word weird uh, w-y-r-d is where we get a modern word weird from w-e-i-r-d but in anglo-saxon time it meant weird in the sense of god's involved in this or providence is involved in this you know that there's something beyond the power of man this is the will of god so weirds broke it means divine providence broke it um it's beyond the power of man it's weird in that divine sense 
Well wrought this wall, weird broke it, the stronghold burst, snapped roof trees, towers fallen, the work of the giants, the stone, stone smiths mouldereth, rhyme scoureth gate towers, rhyme on mortar, shattered the shower shields, even in translation, isn't that beautiful? Shower shields, what, what's a shower shield? A roof. It's been raining all day here. I'm glad I have a shower shield. So shatters the shower shields, roofs ruined, age under eight them, and the wilders and the rights, earth grip holds them. They're dead, they're held in the grip of the earth. Gone, long gone, fast in graves grasp. Or fifty fathers and sons have passed. Wall stood, grey lichen, red stone, kings fell often, stood under storms, high arch crashed. Stands yet the wall stone, hacked by weapons, by files grim ground, shone the old skilled work, sank to loam crust. It's beautiful language. Mood quickened mind, and a man of wit, cunning in rings, bound bravely the wall base with iron, a wonder. So he's going back in time now. He's imagining, using his imagination. Right at the time when people lived here. Let's bring this to life. Bright were the buildings, halls where springs ran, high, horn gabled, much throng noise. Modern, horrible, modern English partying right throng noise is much better than partying these many mead halls men filled with loud cheerfulness weird changed that came days of pestilence on all sides men fell dead death fetched off the flower of the people where they stood to fight waste places and on the acropolis ruins Hosts who would build again shrank to the earth. Therefore are these courts dreary and that red arch twisted tiles rieth farm roof ridge reacheth groundwards broken blocks. There once many a man mood glad, gold bright of gleams garnished, flushed with wine pride flashing war gear, gazed on wrought gemstones, on gold, on silver, on wealth held and hoarded, on light-filled amber, on this bright burg of broad dominion, stood stone houses, wide streams welled hot from source, and a wall all caught in its bright bosom, that the baths were hot at whose hearth that was fitting. Thence hot streams loosed, ran over whorestone unto the ring tank. It is a kingly thing, city. I read the whole poem there because I couldn't stop. But you see how that's a meditation? It's uh it's used the Latin it's a memento mori. It's a reminder of death. It's a reminder of mortality. That doesn't matter how wealthy or how healthy we are, it's all going to pass away. It's an encouragement for us to keep our minds and hearts on the eternal things, or what the church will call the last things death, judgment, heaven, and hell. The whole of that poem is a meditation on mutability, the changing nature of time and things beholden to time and how, how that's to make us reflect upon mortality and immortality time and eternity here we see if you like how a poem can lead us to and is meant to be the deepest contemplative meditative mystical prayer uh, i want to just read one very brief thing from bede's ecclesiastical history of england which is also from the 700s, about the same time as Beowulf. And he talks here about a brother of the monastery is found to possess God's gift 
of poetry. And he's talking about the poet Cædmon here. And he, he translates um, some of Cædmon's poetry. Now, ironically, what he's doing, Bede's writing in Latin. So he's actually translating from the English, the Old English, into Latin. And of course, from what I'm now reading is a, a translation from the Latin back into the modern English. So various shadows are falling, I'm sure. Um, so perhaps I won't even bother to read the translation of the translation of the translation of Cadwan's poetry. But what I want to speak about, quote, is Bede commenting on his own translation of Cadman's poetry from the English to the Latin. He quotes six lines of verse and he says, this is the general sense, but not the actual words that Cadmon sang in his dream. For verses, however masterly, cannot be translated literally from one language into another without losing much of their beauty and dignity. When Cadmon awoke, he remembered everything that he had sung in his dream and soon added more verses in the same style to a song truly worthy of God. We have a poem truly worthy of God. And of course, who has given the poem? The beginning of this poem appears to Cadmon in a dream. It's a vision. In other words, the muse is a gift of God. And, and the, the, the true art always needs to be, true art needs to be the giving back to the giver of the gift, the fruits of the gift given. Right, because we, we, it's the same as the gift of life, right? We don't own our lives. If we owned our lives, we'd, we wouldn't uh, be uh, separated from it. <laughs> um, we wouldn't die, right? We owe our lives. We owe our lives and we owe all the other gifts, the talents that, we, that are given to us with the expectation we do good things with them. So Cademon gives back to the giver of the gift, the fruits of the gift given, and all true art should be that. And in that sense, you see the mystical connection, right? Between poesis, between the making of poetry, the writing of poetry, uh, and, and prayer, because it actually is all inextricable. It's all connected together. All right, and on that note, I want to talk about the practical nature, and it's medieval times and modern times, our own times, of the connection between poetry and praise, or poetry and prayer. And I'd like to put it in this way, that there are time, there are three phrases about time that poetry will help us to meditate upon and connect with in, in, in the correct way. There's making time, there's taking time, and there's wasting time. And bear in mind before we talk about this, uh, what Hopkins says, uh, I could give a separate lecture, by the way, about how Hopkins is the most medieval of poets, even though he's writing the 19th century, um, which would justify my quoting him all the time. But um, and we don't have time for that. But take my word for it. I mean, it's hugely influenced by Anglo-Saxon poetry, by Gregorian chant, by medieval Welsh poetry. So uh, by the philosophy of both Aquinas and Scotus, he, he's a, a Jesuit in the 19th century, but he's very imbued by Franciscan Dominican philosophy and by old English and, and old Gaelic poetry. But anyway, but what he says, that I could come back to this, making time, taking time, wasting time. He says that we are soft sift in an hourglass. Think about that. Right? Hourglasses contain sand, right? You turn it over and it starts to sift through to the other side. And when all the sand's gone through, the time's up. Maybe you're timing an egg or timing a life of a man. So we're all soft sift in an hourglass. So our time is running away as we speak, and there's nothing we can do to bring it back. We cannot make time. God makes time. All that we can do is take time or waste time. And I would argue, and I have argued, I've read an essay once called Distracting Ourselves to Death, that the modern world is a world which is wasting time. It's all about distractions. It's all about addictive distractions, in fact, that waste time. Poetry never wastes time. Poetry always takes time. 
And one of the beautiful things about poetry is you cannot read it quickly. You have to slow down. You have to take time to do it, whether you're reading it or writing it. You have to get off of the wasted time and start taking time. And in that sense, it's the most important time that we spend. It's time in poetry and time in praise and prayer. And you see in the connection, I hope, because prayer is also exactly the same. Of course, we can say the rosary in 10, 10 minutes flat. We can do that. And it's certainly better than not saying it. I'm not condemning people's practices of saying the rosary. But obviously, you know, the, the, that's fine as prayer. But the, the, the best prayer is when we actually engage with God. Uh, uh, we're actually in going through what Thomas Aquinas says, that we, with humble hearts, have grateful hearts, and that grateful hearts opens our minds and hearts to wonder so that we can be open to contemplation, at least to that dilation, that opening. So uh, poetry, praise, prayer are all connected inextricably in that, in that way. And that's why I'm always saying poetry is good for you, right? Um, you need to take time to read it. Ideally, you need to take time to write it. And bearing in mind Chesterton's phrase, I think it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. You don't have to be as good a poet as Shakespeare in order to write poetry. Just doing it is good. All right. So, and of course, we are in scripture, we see poetry. We see beauty, beautiful literature, beautiful song. The, the book of the Psalms, book of Daniel, the Song of Songs, the first chapter of St. John's Gospel. The scripture itself is full of the beauty of poetry. So what I'd like to do now, I mean, I, I've got, I wrote an anthology of, of poetry uh, called uh, Poems Every Catholic Should Know. Uh, it was originally published in England as uh, Flowers of Heaven, 1,000 Years of, of, of Catholic Verse. And I actually edited this as a, a sort of protest uh, at the time of the millennium back in England. It's all about having huge parties and, and getting drunk for a week, right? There's no mention of Jesus Christ and the, being the, the 2000th anniversary of the birth of Christ. That's why we're celebrating the millennium. So I wanted to do something at least that was Christian. So I, I did this anthology and the British publisher published it and then subsequently published in the UK. Um, so 1000 years of Christian verse. Well, that, of course, at least the first half of the, of the book or the first part of the book is medieval. So I want to just look at some of it. What I was going to read here, Hildegard of Bingen has some poetry in here. As far as the CC, of course, wrote some glorious poetry. And St. Thomas Aquinas. Right? So remember that the, the church's greatest philosopher was also one of the church's greatest poets. The whole Corpus Christi sequence, those glorious poems written by St. Thomas Aquinas. So the greatest saints are also great poets. So I, I was going to use examples of that. St. Gertrude the Great, wonderful German medieval poet, of course, Dante. And then there's a whole section here, by the way, of anonymous medieval poetry, glorious poetry. And what I love is that they, the poetry is in English, but there's normally a refrain at the end of each, not normally, often, a refrain at the end of each stanza in Latin. So there's sort of very easy, healthy, comfortable way in which the medievals just if you like, dance between the two languages. Yeah, so, okay, so I think I'm going to leave some time for questions now. If there aren't any questions, I will read some of these, okay? We do have a couple in the Q&A box here, yeah. so let me pose a couple. Scott Allen writes in and he says, Dear Pierce, could you comment on the differences between prose and poetry in their respective powers to shape the way we communicate about God? Okay, good question. Um, you know, generally speaking, when we talk about the medieval period, they didn't indulge in prose. Uh, you know, the general literature is almost always uh, poetic. Uh, I, I would say basically two things: is that the poetry at its best. Well, let, let's let's use an let's use an analogy, which hope, hopefully is not too shocking. Chesterton would not be shocked, so no one hear Belloc, no one C.S. Lewis or J.R. Tolkien. Prose is is like fermented beverages. Uh, like ale or wine, uh, whereas poetry is, is distilled, 
right? It's like single malt whiskey or bourbon. Um, in, in other words, the, 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 the thing about poetry is there's no extraneous words at all. I mean, in great prose, there shouldn't be either. But then at that point, if the prose, prose is great enough, it's poetic. Uh, and certainly in the broader sense we're talking about here. So great poetry, uh, it's obviously much, should be much more formally structured. There should be not even one word that's not needed. So I'm getting so excited, I'm shaking the camera here. In one word that's out of place, that messes up the scansion, for instance, in a poem, uh, makes you want to shudder, all right? You want, you want to excommunicate that word now. It shouldn't be there. Whereas, you know, that a good writer, if you like, has liberty in prose to perambulate around things and, and you, uh, you're not counting the rhythms, you're not counting, you're not measuring the metrics. So um, I, I, think, I think the key thing is that poetry is, is language distilled to its precise, succinct beauty, whereas prose gives itself more liberty, more license. I hope that's adequate. Um, I had a quick question. You were talking about the beginning, how um, a poet cooperates with God's uh, creative faculty when he writes a poem. And I was wondering if you could talk about um, whether or not a poet must intentionally mean to do so. Um, in other words, does participation in that divine creative faculty, does it require the artist to recognize um, his participation and to be uh, aware of the knowledge of divine revelation? That basically, the analogy I used earlier is, is very uh, appropriate here. That, that a gift is given to us by God uh, as a gift, uh, and he respects our freedom, which does not mean, of course, there aren't consequences for the abuse of freedom. So the analogy would be the gift of life. Do we have to consciously be grateful and aware that life is a gift of God every moment that we're awake? Well, no, evidently not, because many people live their lives uh, oblivious to the fact, okay? So God gives us a gift, and then he leaves us the freedom to use or abuse the gift. And so the same thing is true of the, of the creative gifts, that if someone's given five talents, five creative talents, so he's a great writer as opposed to somebody who has one or two, he can produce good literature. And, I, and I've spoken about this in, in the past, you know, you can get... Uh, literature could be judged on, in, in, in two ways. Is it good as, as virtue uh, or is it good as art? If someone has five talents, but they're motivated and animated by an animus towards the faith, for instance, uh, and they're animated by pride, they'll use those five talents, maybe ultimately diabolically. But it, there will still be five talents worth of art there because that's the gift given. But it will be bad bad in terms of virtue so that's why i said that the, the, the true art in other words art which if you like genuflects before the truth is giving back to the giver of the gift the fruits of the gift given but the gift is given anyway the gift is not given provisionally that we that we do that with it if we want to abuse it we want to cast our pearls before swine god doesn't prevent us from doing that they may be held to pay for doing it but that's another issue thank you and uh there's a great talk music in the Soul of Restoring or Destroying the Inner Man uh, by Professor Cutterback. And then also mm -hmm. Robert Riley gave a talk on uh, the nature of beauty. And both those things explore the scene a lot further. There's a, a question coming in from Victoria, and she uh, is asking for your comments on the mendicant orders, and particularly what factors contributed to the composition of medieval prayer slash poetry in the vernacular. Ah, okay. Um, well, obviously, um, Dante chose to write in Italian instead of, uh, of Latin. I'm not really sure that there's a major issue in terms of, you know, that it's heretical to do that. It's disobedient to the church to do that. I think that Dante wanted to make a glorious work of art, and he spoke Italian better than he spoke Latin. And so, so he used the medium that was most appropriate to produce the, 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 the edifice uh, of literature which he produced. So I, I don't think there's a problem there. But what I would say about the mendicant orders is that they did, they did give us uh, a great deal of poetry, as I've said. Uh, you know, St. Francis, in, in, my, in my book, Poems Every Catholic Should Know, there's uh, St. Francis' Prayer for Peace. There's also his Canticle of the Sun. 
Uh, and although I don't actually include, I, I, I don't know why I didn't include Mayor Cooper, Mayor Cooper, um, the, uh, the the wonderful the wonderful poetry uh, for the Corpus Christi se sequence of St Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, and Aquinas sort of says, and again, those that are the the postmodernists that are at war with reason sort of abuse the meaning of this. But when Aquinas basically was was gifted with a mystical vision. Um, and he said that all of his all of his other work was like straw before that. Of course, it's not saying that reason is like straw. It's saying that compared with the glimpse of the beatific vision, right, the summa is nothing compared to the, the, the presence of God. But again, that's a perfect example of a mystic. And one of the things I love about uh, uh, Aquinas is the way that he combines absolutely precise and profound and brilliant reason with a soul that's open to the beauty uh, of God's creation and, and, a, and a great gift to actually express himself poetically. Changing the, the, the gears here a little bit, there's a question coming in from Paul. He's probably not meaning it like a challenge, but I'm going to play like devil's advocate here. Yeah, good. Say, okay, so this is all nice and, and we can look out at the, the clouds and, and, and be taken away by the beauty of it and whatnot, but, but, how are these truths that we're learning tonight, how can we sort of implement them day-to-day -day in our workplace setting? Oh, very good. Okay, the, the take-home. Let me put it this way. There's some, something I always say about the power of beauty to evangelize, in, in particularly the relativistic culture, okay? In an age of relativism, it's difficult to talk about evangelizing uh, through the apologetics of, of reason because they say, well, that's your opinion. Right? If basically, if reason is, 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 is seated in me, if I'm my own God, and I decide what's right and wrong and what's, what's, what's true and false, then you can't engage on a level of an objectivity which is outside of both of us. So it becomes difficult to evangelize through reason. Similarly, evangelizing through love, and it's still, by the, by the way, is, is the, most, the, the best way to evangelize is to become a saint, right? to become a lover, to, to love as Christ loved. And, and that is so disarming. Uh, but to talk about love rather than doing it, in other words, to try to evangelize by talking about what virtue is in a culture which thinks love is a feeling, love is a sexual attraction, love is not a, a rational choice, um, you're not even talking on the same level with people because they don't have the same understanding of what love is. So in this uh, way, then poetry and beauty become the only way for many people in our culture to, to if you like, evangelize them, to engage them. And, and, the, and the analogy I give is, is, is you, you take a, a Catholic and a Protestant and a Jew and a Muslim and an atheist and you take them out in the middle of the night and you sit them down in the field facing east and then you wait for the sun to come up. And when they see the sunrise, first of all, they won't see the sunrise first, they'll see that the, the color of the, the clouds change um, and they'll see, you know, the, the, if you like, the, the glorious reds and golds dilating, opening out across the sky. And eventually they'll see the sunrise and they probably look at the sun for the first few minutes. Look directly at it. It might be white. It might be light. I mean, I've actually read a poem once uh, where, where I liken the, the uh, a solstice, summer solstice sunrise to, to the corpus. When you can actually see the white disc rising. So all of those people... Jew, Catholic, Protestant, atheist, Muslim, insofar as they have humility, will be grateful that they're there. And they will say, it's good for us to be here. And insofar as they're grateful, they will ask the next obvious question rationally, to whom do we thank? Whom do we thank for this? If, you want, if, you, if you're grateful, you want to thank somebody, right? So beauty can be the most practical way to actually evangelize the culture in a relativistic age. You're making me think of a professor Clayton gave us a talk and some of you guys are aware that we do programs like this on weekday nights that are sort of either one part or two part series. But we also do something called the Sophia symposium, which are basically almost like semester long courses, right? And one of the ones that we recently had finished was professor Clayton had done this talk precisely on this subject the way of beauty. And this was a nine hour course on this very uh, topic. Uh, Mr. Pierce, there's one more question here. Tom William asks a question. He says, is there real evidence 
that, and you're going to have to control your uh, excitement on this one. I know you could go for hours. <laughs> uh, is there real evidence that Shakespeare's poetry emanates from a strong Catholic conviction? <laughs> well, uh, yes, you're right. So that's a whole other five lectures. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, I actually um, did two 13-part courses, two 13-part series for EWTN uh, looking exactly this evidence. I've written three books on the subject. So the answer is yes. I don't really know at, at, at the last question, an hour-long lecture, how I'm going to answer beyond that. Except you know, that if you want, I would, I would suggest that you check out my book, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays. That would be the way I would answer that question. That would, that's not just a, a 15-minute answer. It would take you 15 hours. But it would be worth every single minute of it. It would be taking time and not wasting it. Perfect. Thank you, Mr. Pearson. And if we could just close, you could sure. read one of the poems from that book there. Yeah, the one, one, I, one I actually like, well, there's so many I like in here, but there's one I actually like, it's, it's, there's lots of anonymous poetry from the, med, from the Middle Ages, but I actually like uh, Corpus Christi Carol here. We have Corpus Christi coming up. Actually, it's tomorrow, right? Thursday, two days' time is Corpus Christi, and we're, of course, celebrating it on Sunday. This might be an appropriate place to end. Corpus Christi Carol. And quite clearly, this would have been sung as well. Lully, 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 lully. The falcon hath borne my mate away. He bear him up, he bear him down. He bear him into an orchard brown. In that orchard there was an hall that was hanged with purple and pall. And in that hall there was a bed. It was hanged with gold so red. And in that bed there lieth a knight, his wounds bleeding both day and night. By that bedside there kneeleth a maid, and she weepeth both night and day. And by that bedside there standeth a stone, Corpus Christi written thereon. So it gets a wonderful image of Christ as a knight in shining armor, bleeding for us and his mother beside his bed. That's awesome. It's honestly just a, a total joy to have you with us, Mr. Pierce. And I, I, I feel often myself, I'm more inclined to just read nonfiction. And sometimes I get in this mode of like Chesterton's maniac, right? And to have a, a topic like this where the imagination is reawakened it's a, a breath of fresh air. So thank you for the time that you've spent with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, everybody. God bless you. Okay. Take care. God bless. Peace. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.